Trouble in my way, trouble in my way, want some time, trouble in my way, child, want some time, trouble in my way, want some time, tears will take me by and by, I got a bleeding heart, cry sometimes, bleeding heart now, I want to cry sometimes, I got a bleeding heart, cry. This is podcast two in the series entitled Over the River, episode 119. And we've uh, heard Trouble in My Way. And what happens in uh, life is that um, you're brought short. Now, some religions call this karma. It catches up with you. The Old Testament says that the sins of the fathers rest upon the children and grandchildren up until the third and fourth generations. And um, the uh, progress of human life is often a progress of unmasking and um, unhooking the various clothing which we surround ourselves with to prevent a kind of um, the uh, feared thing happen. And so there is uh, a process that happens in everyone's life, and it is most typically expressed in physical death, when you you have to face up to the things inside yourself that if they haven't been faced through a wonderful organization like AA or through a really deep form of Christianity or a religion that really 
gets to where you live. If this doesn't happen before death, it happens at death. I was fortunate because it uh, happened to me in the year uh, 2007. Now, what's important here is that I not describe other people or bring other people into this, uh, not just for a um, desire I feel not to implicate or point fingers or become sort of focused on the external. What I want to do is to talk as truthfully and as accurately as I can about what went on with me. What was the catching up that had to happen? What what was the card that the conjurer dealt me? This is a phrase from Huxley's novel, Eyeless in Gaza. What had to happen in me? And I can talk truthfully as to the best of my ability and accurately to the best of my ability about that without uh, dealing with the external uh, factors, which it is simply not the time to discuss, but I'm not going to hide what was the the feeling and the reality of the way I perceive this. I'd always had a role to play in kind of the simmering Episcopal Church culture wars because I was always uh, what today might be called a moderate neoconservative for all sorts of psychic reasons and some perhaps rational reasons. Going back to like when I was 12 years old in school, always had a gravitation towards sort of the Edmund Burke school of thought. And this, coupled with a certain kind of electrical desire to attach myself to a point of view, was something that way predates anything uh, that I'm going to talk about now, but it was there. And simmering in the Episcopal Church and in the Anglican Communion were all sorts, and in Christianity and in life and in our culture and in the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party, there were simmering uh, fault lines that my psyche was inevitably going to be drawn to underline or look at or observe. And um, I uh, began to become uh, highly aware of this uh, when the Episcopal Church uh, culture wars heated up in in an extreme manner in the summer of 2003. And it's not an ideological question for me. It's a question of ideology, qua ideology, not one side or another. I became attached, as I was always, to an evangelical point of view, which had now become quite militant. Why do people become militant? because they begin to circle their wagons. They get defensive out of fear. And when the um, simmering problems of uh, church politics and church ideology sort of boiled over in 2003, then the uh, actings out of the inward became more extreme. And uh, for me, always, this was a kind of a deep sense of vulnerability and fear that had always been in fear of the fathers. Call it what you want, the the uh, the father figures. Um, let me be your father figure, George Michael. And anyone who knows me knows this about me, whether it's a fear of uh, strong women or a fear of strong men, it's fear. And the fear leads to defensiveness. And when the kind of power play that I associate with extreme ideological positions, and it, as I said, it can happen on the left or the right. But in this case, it happened from the left to the right, simply historically speaking, in terms of numbers and influence. There was a defensiveness that became natural for at least me, and the defensiveness caused reactivity. We have the expression circling of the wagons, and the wagons circled. Um, and uh, and when the wagons circle, you you know you 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 gather under the canvas and under the plywood, and you load your rifles. And the like in all the old wagon train movies, the women prime the prime the barrels and the 
muskets and you take the shot. And um, I was uh, keenly and increasingly under a sense of personal pressure that resulted in uh, what the world today calls reactivity. I don't want to become superficial and just say, oh, this is just Paul Zoll now sees that he was too angry. Well, Paul Zoll sees that Paul Zoll, Quay Paul Zoll, was a very fearful person who was highly invested in a particular um, sort of uh, identity. And this identity was being um, quite severely under pressure. And he, in turn, became like an elastic, uh, like an elastic band underneath it. And uh, uh, pressure results in pressure, or as uh, someone who I will talk about in a few minutes talks about terror. I was in terror, and so I became uh, quite uh, behind the wagons in a ministry that was otherwise going extremely well. And when things became almost untenably stressful, given the church political landscape, a job was offered. And this job, uh, because it was identified uh, with a group of people that were already very clearly identified with an ideology and another group of people, the Anglican Evangelicals, with whom I had been identified for decades, when this job became available and it was told me that, well, you know, you'll be at, at the point of the plow in terms of the real difficulties now, you'll be at the point of the plow. And isn't this the place where you want to be, where your so-called, quote, end of quote, gifts can be matched with what is needed of someone like yourself at this point? So I took the job and uh, began to work uh, as a kind of uh, lead to this institution and a group of people that I'd always identified with. And yet I now was handed the card from the conjurer. And the card from the conjurer was, Paul, you are too angry. And underneath the anger, there's actually a person called, quote, Paul Zoll, who's a very frightened person. And uh, by the way, I don't want to somehow say that uh, anger is justified by the fact that terror lies behind it. Anger is never justified, but nevertheless, the only way to get through your anger is to understand what lies beneath what lies beneath. And it's Godzilla or Gorgo. Let me just tell you, it is Gorgo. And Gorgo is terrified little child. Remember, Gorgo is captured in that wonderful movie, if you like movies of that kind. Gorgo is really a child. It's only Mother Gorgo later who emerges to get her child from London. But initially, Gorgo, the terrible, is really just a child who kills a man in a bathysphere, more out of curiosity than out of anything malign. And um, this caught up with me. And uh, I became uh, entirely um, caught up with a... With a uh, uh, a, a terror that expressed itself in a huge identification with the school of thought. And this ended up um, being uh, caught by the conjurer who showed me that there were other people more angry than I. In other words, those at whom I was angry, and I was the angry one, were not as um, uh, 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 in the same category as the people who then became angry at me. And when I was the victim of the anger in a new and fresh and dramatic way, I saw something. Now, I had forgotten earlier to say that this podcast is dedicated to Mary Zoll, Mary Kaplan Zoll, as are all the podcasts. And I had also forgotten to read the prayer that I need to read in order to continue, because it is so apt. The Collect for the Fourth Sunday After Easter. Hold on, because it directly relates to what I'm just about to say. O oh, Almighty God, who alone canst order the unruly wills and affections of sinful men, grant unto thy people that we may love the thing which thou commandest, and desire that which thou dost promise, that so, among the sundry and manifold changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed, where true joys are to be found, through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Well, that collect seems apt because it talks about the unruly wills and affections of sinful men. And then it uh, describes a situation that uh, our hearts can only be fixed above the sundry and manifold changes of the world, which we ourselves contribute to with our unruly wills. And uh, the conjurer showed me that I could be outflanked on the right. That's a human political term. And that my anger was as nothing or as parallel to other angers. And I sort of said, oh my gosh, you know, this is me. And... um, I want to compare myself to a person who, in all these old English movies and Galsworthy novels and uh, Somerset Mom, the wife at the end of the day always says to her husband, uh, darling, would you please unfasten my dress for me? You know, and he unfastens the hooks in the back of the dress. Uh, and um, the hooks on my dress needed to be unfastened. And so they were by a situation in which I found that I could barely lead, really um, caught by my own angry identity with people who were equally, if not more, but shall we just say equally identified, and who were going to play the same game. And that's a losing struggle, because the very self who's fighting it uh, is fighting it out of a, a need. It's not out of strength remotely. So Trouble My Way occurred in a crisis of leadership in which I simply could not lead. And um, wonderfully, at the time, I was helped by someone But the help, which was extremely timely and unexpected and fabulous and endures to this day, the summer of 2012, actually the fall of 2012, the help came in the form of a meltdown that I had in relationship to airplane anxiety. This was post 9-11 America, and I wasn't, um, uh, I'd never been worried about the possibility of a plane crashing. What had always unnerved me in plane travel was delays. I was like Rudyard Kipling says he was. He was so obsessed by delays in train travel in England when he was living there in the early 20th century that was, uh, they were, uh, um, he went everywhere for his very important and constant activities and meetings on trains and appointments. And he finally uh, became, as he said, someone who actually believed that the British rail system was entirely set up to frustrate the uh, plans and appointments and personal schedules of Rudyard Kipling. Well, I became convinced in my fearful mind that the whole airline industry was to frustrate my life. And it was particularly in the delayed flights, the flights that I missed, the flights that were canceled, and most importantly, the airline security uh, that would just throw me into an absolute panic. And I was in touch all of a sudden with a very frightened, vulnerable, absolutely fearful person. And this became the key. I had a meltdown after a delayed flight because of a rainstorm in Pensacola, Florida. And the meltdown was so extreme, and I went into such an anxiety state that uh, Mary and I both agreed, because she was with me at the time, that if this is what it was like, then I really needed to... um I needed to get help. And by the grace of God as I see it, I had consulted people before and had been very helped once by someone in England. Very helped indeed. But not particularly helped by a whole host of other um, mental health professionals. I was directed by absolute conjuring providence to a man who was practicing actually not more than a mile from where I lived. And this man immediately understood the panic and anxiety state that had been occasioned and tipped off and was embodied for me right now in the uh, terrible problem with airline anxiety because I was constantly flying back and forth to where I was living. But he saw that it was much, much deeper than that. As I've often said, it's like that uh, buried... um, 
spacecraft and the Tommyknockers by um, Stephen King, where all the people on the Earth see is the three inches that is above the ground, but it's actually about a mile in length, only a few hundred feet beneath them. Well, um, he saw it. He realized it immediately. And I found in going to him, uh, and he was very compassionate, but also very understanding, and uh, began to deal with me not on my own terms, but he began to see that everything I was dealing with was all related to this sort of ego Paul Zoll, and that the ego Paul Zoll was really uh, sort of not true, was not was not really the true person that was also in me, who'd been hungering for the kind of help I found at a camp in Pauling, New York in 1973, and at a church of England Theological College in, also in 1973. And I found that with this man, I began to be in contact with something better, something more still, something more quiet. These are cliches, but for me, they're true ones. Something more peaceful and something ultimately more hopeful and less despairing of constant, compulsive, repetitive... Um, never-ending labyrinthine um, paralysis. And I'm reminded of a wonderful passage on page 19 of Isherwood's novel, A Meeting by the River. And uh, this, uh, uh, I read it right now. He's talking about uh, when he was... Um, doing a job by day, everything seemed a bit dreamlike. And then he refers to someone called the Swami, who for Isherwood is a man named Swami Prabhavananda. Uh, don't worry about the Hindu thing. Uh, Swami Prabhavananda was a real person who was simply that person who was used by God to help comfort, quiet, still, teach, instruct, and finally help, and ultimately heal, and finally create a kind of oddly unusual sort of saint-like persona in Isherwood. And uh, he found that this is what happened when he would go visit his mentor or spiritual advisor or religious psychologist, Swami Prabhavananda, at the end of a busy day. Page 19. When I got back to the Swami's room and sat down quietly with him, he often sat a long time without talking, which was disconcerting at first, but I got used to it. It was like coming out of a daze and asking myself, where was I all day long? And then answering, I don't know exactly, but this is where I am when I'm awake. Well, I, now I'm speaking as myself, uh, felt that very much. It, when I would go see this man, it really was like coming out of a daze, in my case, first airline anxiety, followed very quickly by a leadership crisis in my own professional life. It was, in fact, like coming out of a daze. And to this day, when I go visit him, he lives far away now, but I see him as often as I can, both uh, in different sorts of ways. I found uh, it is like coming out of a daze. I always feel, my gosh, where was I? Where was I before? And uh, I feel, I guess the word is sanity for the first time. And um, I discovered that here was, uh, here was someone who could begin to pilot something inside me that was not glomming on and so attached to all this trouble. I think I've used the expression about the face hugger in Alien, the movie. There's a face hugger on the face of all of us, and this the our reality, and the face hugger is really our ego. And I believe this, by the way. I'm not just using words. I believe that our face hugger is Paul Zoll. And every time Paul Zoll, or you, gets threatened by some outward uh, problem, now I have to turn that off just for a second. I think I've said before that I kind of like the telephone because it's a, it lends verisimilitude in the space-time continuum in which we exist. 
some of us, or a part of us exists, I should say, uh, when the phone rings. Now, I want to refer again to the face hugger. This face hugger is uh, absolutely, every time the ego, which is the face hugger on your true self, is alarmed by something, as in the movie when they try to pry it off or inject it or pull it off the face of the poor man who has it, John Hurt, on his uh, face, uh, it, it tightens its grip and becomes terminal. Well, that's what the ego does. I've said that recently, especially especially in two podcasts, one on Horror Hotel and one called Les Élucubrations d'Antoine, the facehugger pulls, and, 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 and that's what happened with my anxiety at airports. The facehugger just pulled in, and my whole body would shake. And uh, I learned this. And uh, this uh, fine and good uh, uh, religious psychologist who began to help me uh, right at the same time as uh, there was a crisis in my own sense of ministry because of the struggles that uh, I became faced with in this angry and hot I hate to use the word uh, militant situation that I found myself in, that I myself was part of. Um, he began to say, no, look, you know, um, you need to, um, you, you need to find your way through all these identifications. You need to let them go like that dress that has to be unhooked. And if at some point by the grace of God and through some things I can show you, they began to unhook and kind of fall away, then you'd be dealing with your true self. And then you'd find that it's that who you want to concentrate on the true self that we might call the Holy Spirit in me. We might call it God. We might call it love. We might call it um, uh, all that really exists before and after we die that will never not exist, that which we want to get connected with, unhooked from all the things of the uh, ego which are associated with the face-hugger monster. But um, then the real person uh, to become you know, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. That will go beyond the curtain of death. Love will be there forever. And um, I began to be instructed, really, instructed. And uh, I uh, remember he said something that was extremely emphatic and very, very staggering. He said, Paul, remember that you are the hope. It's not this, that, or the other thing. It's not some cause, some school of thought, some theological view, some victory of some perceived group of people, some, um, you know, expiation you want to receive from somebody, some apology, some restitution, some rehabilitation, whatever you want to call it, some justice done to your views. Uh, that is not at all what it's about. You not your views. You are the hope. And I began, gosh, that, you know, that sounds awfully, wow. I don't know what it sounds like, but it, it what about God? Well, I, I, I will talk about God and I'll talk about Easter in the third podcast, but you are the hope. And that was striking. I was also, uh, uh, very, um, aware that uh, I needed to get away from this tremendous uh, I-thou or either-or struggle that I was in with everything. It was all a facehugger being defensive. And uh, I was struck by a little passage again in um, A Meeting by the River by uh, Christopher Isherwood, where he says, um, Oliver says um, in his journal as he reflects on his brother Patrick, who has come a long way to undo him and to oppose his religious views. Oliver writes on page 115, To escape behaving like Patrick, I tell myself that his behavior is evil, and I withdraw hastily into the gloomy, self-righteous part of myself, which has nothing in common with him. It's all mine, and I freeze up the connections between us with hate. Now, it's awfully easy for people to say, you know, let's really, let's, uh, you know, why can't we all uh, get along? You know, well, why can't we all this, that, or the other thing? It's easy for these cliches to not be true, but this was true in my own life. Something very major had to give. And uh, 
I became in contact through the marvelous intervention of an unexpected blessing. Talk about being outside yourself, the justitia extra nos. This was it. I found something utterly new who taught me that the face hugger didn't need to actually control all my anxieties and my fear reactions and my reactivity and what came across the, to the world as a highly reactive person that I, I didn't identify with that person. People would say, you know, well, you're, the, you're the standard bearer of such and such a thing. And I thought, standard bearer? Like what, like in Pickett's Charge? Am I really a standard bearer? Am I the point of some plow? I didn't see myself that way. So I questioned it all very dramatically. And beginning in, oh, early 2007... A great change came into my thinking, and I'm now going to finish and um, prepare the way for Over the River Part 3, which talks about the um, results of uh, looking at my life in facehugger terms and realizing that um, there was a different person who, who, who wasn't really susceptible to the facehugger, who was there just as much. Lo, I am with you always till the end of the age became quite true. And I began to see that there was going to be kind of, for me at least, a very fundamental, not completely lacking in continuity, but a very fundamental change. And here we hear a little bit of Meeksville style on such things. There's a change in the weather, change in the sea. From now on, there's gonna be a change in me. My walk will be different, my talk will be. Nothing about it's gonna stay the same. I'm gonna change my address. Don't be 